Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, John Zell Anderson, licensed professional counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me back for part two of the book review that I'm doing on Ashley Peterson's book, A Brief History of Stigma, Looking for Ways to Move Beyond Mental Illness Stigma. So in the last episode, I talked about how the book is kind of set up, what were some of the rationales that the author had for writing the book. Today, I'm going to go into a little bit more detail into some of the uh, insights that I gained from the different types of mental health stigma, the different angles that it impacts people. Um, So I hope that my uh, compilation of notes that I've taken on this kind of gives you a good snapshot into what a great resource this book is. So I'm going to jump in with a quote to kind of continue to develop this uh, conversation about mental health stigma, but also the consequences that it can have if it continues to go unchecked. So quote, one of the most harmful stereotypes associated with mental illness is that it makes people violent. Similar stereotypes involve dangerousness, criminality, unpredictability, untrustworthiness, and unreliability. Data from 2018 showed that 60% of Americans believed that people with schizophrenia were dangerous. However, as we'll see in the next chapter, most people with mental illness are no more likely to be violent than anybody else. Mental illness is sometimes perceived as a moral failure stemming from weak character, lack of control, and lack of willpower. The individual with mental illness is seen as being responsible for bringing on the illness and therefore undeserving of help. In a study of Canadians, almost half of participants believe that people use mental health as an excuse for behaving badly. Beliefs around moral failings can also be the basis for concerns about contagion, the belief that one can become mentally unwell by associating with people who are mentally ill and picking up their moral weakness. People with bipolar disorder have reported significant perceived stigma, comparable to what's reported by people with schizophrenia. This stigma is often attributed to a public lack of knowledge, or failure to accept bipolar as a legitimate issue. The use of the term bipolar in casual conversation likely contributes to that, end quote. And so I want to comment on that. People are often misusing clinical terms. Uh, And I believe one of the quotes that I'm going to share later kind of goes a little bit more in-depth to this, but from my own observations as a therapist, I hear it and see it all the time. 
and I try to be patient and um, use those misuses uh, when I see people misusing the terms to use them as a teachable moment to explain. Well, I mean, ADHD, OCD, bipolar, the list goes on of things that popular media kind of grasps onto and people have incorporated into their, you know, day-to-day dialogue. Um, but it's definitely a misuse, but also it, it, it perpetuates this misinformation about mental health. So continuing on, quote, psychotic disorders like schizophrenia are tremendously stigmatized, and there's a strong stereotype linked between psychosis and violence, unpredictability, and unreliability, along with a huge desire for social distance. It is likely, or it likely doesn't help matters that the general public may not recognize the distinct meanings of the terms psychotic, psychopathic, and the slang psycho. The psycho killer trope in film likely also contributes, even though it has nothing to do with psychosis, end quote. So again, that's kind of sharing how people often take hold of these uh, derivatives of mental health terms and they get misused so much that people um, without mental health training are sharing these terms and stuff like that to describe behaviors. And it really just perpetuates this negative view that people have of those who are really struggling with mental illness. which in essence is the application of stigma. And obviously the consequences of stigma are that these people are um, uh, avoided or shunned from society or um, over-policed and uh, treated as less than because of the stigma. So obviously um, this is, you know, I've said this before, but it's a very important topic. Um, And so one of the consequences of stigma is shame. Um, And so I'm going to share a little bit about what the author has to say about that and its application. So, quote, shame can be a significant negative consequence of stigma. In the study of people with psychotic disorders, stigma was associated with internalized shame and low self-esteem, which in turn contributed to feelings of depression and hopelessness. People who experience stigma tend to respond in one of three main ways, internalizing it to become self-stigma, developing righteous anger, or mostly ignoring it as not relevant, end quote. I share this because shame obviously is a consequence or byproduct of someone being impacted by mental health stigma, but I see a lot of this, especially in communities of color. Um, the the shame of, you know, having something, uh, a struggle in life or something like that, It it's very, uh, it, it's definitely very looked down upon uh, in communities of color. Um, I have numerous clients who have been in therapy with me for years, but nobody in their life knows that they're talking to a therapist because if their, say, parents or colleagues ever knew that they 
were um, talking to a therapist or say taking medication for their mental health, uh, they would get a lecture about how they need to go to church or how um, it's all in their head or it would be minimized or they would be shunned and treated as less than uh, for the, the simple disclosure that they're receiving help for their mental illness. And um, shame is obviously a, a very dangerous um, symptom uh, of a person dealing with mental health stigma because it often uh, keeps people from stepping forward and getting the help that they need. Um, but it also, you know, people who kind of maintain that status quo, it, it's a ripple effect to other people. Um, that's why at least here on this podcast and through my therapy work, I, uh, I encourage people to be very open and um, unapologetic about talking about these things because the, the more that we push things down and avoid them, the less quality of life we have. And so next, I want to share a little bit about how the author actually incorporates the concept of passing uh, into this discussion of mental health stigma. So on this podcast, I've talked about uh, passing um, and and through my blog, too, I've talked about uh, the term passing and it's. Uh, it depends on how it's applied to, to what it means. So, for example, I've talked about the fact that my daughter, who is biracial, uh, presents as very f- fair-skinned, right? Um, so if someone didn't know that I was her father, they may look at her and say, well, she's white. And if she were to, say, not correct them or to kind of just go along with what society thinks of her, uh, that would be a a form of passing, right? Um, And I use the term passing with kind of an asterisk because passing um, in and of itself, the, the system implies that what the person is passing as is the normative. So... For example, uh, if my daughter is passing as white, that means that 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 implies um, indirectly that white is the normal or the status quo, right, which is false. Um, And so I um, did a review on my blog not too long ago about a book. It's called The Passing Playbook. And that book, the main character... Uh, was a trans guy, and the the application of the term passing was that that character did not, so he starts at a new school and doesn't tell anybody uh, that he's trans. And so uh, the term passing is applied there because he's not directly telling people that he is a trans guy he is, quote, passing as male, which, again, the nuance and the understanding applied here is that we're not saying that being um, cisgender is the normative, but even when we use the term passing, it 
it implies that one is more preferred to another. So I, I say all of that with um, the caveat that these are just terms that have become constructions. Uh, and so we need to, you know, look at them very carefully. So bringing it back into um, Ashley Peterson's book here, uh, she talks about concealable stigma. So, quote, concealable stigmas are actually associated with higher levels of stress and anxiety and worse self-esteem than stigmas that are not concealable. Concerns about the ability to pass and anticipated stigma can lead to hypervigilance, preoccupation, and suspiciousness in interpersonal interactions. Attempts to suppress the illness identity can intensify memories of experience stigma, which then influence future interactions. End quote. So what this is saying is that people who are trying to avoid stigma will often present as if they that nothing is wrong right um and so i gave some examples of other types of passing whether it be related to race gender and it could even be applied to sexuality this is this kind of comes off of that uh what i mentioned in the first episode about intersectionality um there's a lot of um interactions here but um Basically, what that quote says is that people who engage in passing, whether it be in this context, passing uh, with a mental illness, basically living and operating as if they are completely mentally well uh, and maybe not receiving treatment or something like that. Um, those folks who do that often have higher levels of anxiety, self-esteem challenges, and hypervigilance, which means you're very suspicious and kind of looking over your shoulders. Um, so that is worth mentioning. Like, uh, hopefully these examples I'm sharing with you are kind of building the case that this author does about the uh, applications um, and impacts that mental health stigma has on people. Um, so here's another quote. Managing mental illness can become more difficult in the face of self-stigma. High levels of self-stigma have been linked to an increased number of psychiatric hospitalizations, poorer adherence to treatment, and lower quality of life. People may also be reluctant to seek treatment due to feelings of shame, expectations of devaluation and discrimination, by health professionals, and a sense of why bother, end quote. So self-stigma is, you know, we all know what stigma is. So if something is stigmatized, it means that there is a negative belief or slant put onto something, right? And it makes people treat that issue as inferior or less than as a result. Self-stigma is when we take those beliefs and norms and we turn it on ourselves. Um, and so, uh, you know, I have uh, clients who, you know, I, I shared a little while ago about how I have clients who don't disclose uh, things about their mental health with their family because they know how the family might react. Um, 
And so as this previous quote shared, you know, those individuals tend to have more anxiety, self-esteem, concerns, hypervigilance, and things like that. But a, I guess, meta um, application of the stigma is that not only do they feel the stigma from their loved ones in their community, but they also project those societal beliefs onto themselves and that self-stigma. So um, I'm always telling my clients, be kind to yourself. And I say that often because the only, I guess, place in our lives that there's not really a system of checks and balances is in our own mind. So sometimes the things that people are saying to themselves are way worse than anything they'll ever hear. Uh, out of the mouth of another person. So I appreciate that the author kind of talks about uh, this type of stigma, which is called self-stigma. And so next, I'm going to share a little bit more about uh, some of the specific stereotypes related to mental um, illness. So, quote, One of the most common stereotypes about mental illness that contributes to prejudice and discrimination is that it makes people prone to violence. This idea is regularly reinforced by the media, leading to fear and discriminatory behaviors like avoidance among the general public. Unfortunately, it's getting more prominent in people's minds, not less. A survey done in the United States in 1996 showed that the percentage of people who linked mental illness to violence had more than doubled compared to a similar survey conducted in 1950. The 1996 survey also showed a greater desire for social distance from mentally ill people, and more people believed that violence is a fundamental part of mental illness. All of this came despite an increase in the public's understanding of what mental illness is. End quote. So we've talked about the stereotypes related to mental illness and violence. Uh, The author takes that a little bit deeper and goes into how this plays in with gun violence. So, quote, there's nothing like gun violence, especially mass shootings, to bring out the violent mentally ill stereotyping. Despite the stereotypes, people with mental illness are less likely to commit gun violence than the national average. Between 2001 and 2010, less than 5% of the 120,000 gun-related killings that occurred in the U.S. were carried out by people with a mental illness diagnosis. When mentally ill folks do decide to reach for the guns, it's overwhelmingly to kill themselves, not others. The majority of gun-related deaths are due to suicide, while less than 1% of gun-related homicides are due to mass shootings by people with a serious mental illness. It's not great for mentally ill people to have guns, as suicide accounts for more than half of gun-related deaths in the U.S., 61% according to 2010 data, and greater firearm availability increases suicide risk. However, legislators don't create gun control laws to protect mentally ill people from themselves. They create them solely because of the perceived risk to others. 
Gun control laws become a form of structural stigma when arbitrary restrictions are applied simply based upon a broad class of diagnoses rather than any sort of individualized assessment of risk. All of these restrictions come down to the idea that it's possible to predict who is likely to be violent based on their psychiatric diagnosis or treatment history. It's the old argument that guns don't kill people, people kill people. Good luck picking out who's going to be the next mass shooter. It certainly hasn't worked very well thus far. In the meantime, that angry young white guy who's never been in a hospital or even seen a doctor about his mental health has bought an AR-15 and shot up a school. Being male is a more significant risk factor than being mentally ill, but no one is arguing for that to be used as a basis for selectively restricting rights. When gun advocates argue that gun control doesn't work because it hasn't stopped mass shootings, we need to think about who has been the primary target of those gun control laws. Attempts to restrict gun access for people who've been hospitalized for psychiatric reasons don't work to stop mass shootings because people are not the source of the problem. As for people being law-abiding, someone with a gun can be entirely law-abiding right up until the point that they start shooting people. Placing restrictions on those with mental illness doesn't do anything to take the gun away from that person, end quote. I really like that the author addresses this issue. There's a little bit of sarcasm and humor in there as well, uh, which is needed for such a, a heavy topic. But um, I appreciate that the, that the author is not afraid to call out the bullshit as it applies to uh, claims by uh, gun rights advocates about who should be selectively um, uh, excluded from uh, being able to have a firearm and stuff like that because um, isolating a certain category of people uh, based on uh, mental health history uh, is very narrow in scope and it it really had like the author says it really hasn't done such a great job so far. And so I appreciate those insights there. And so next is the quote that um, I had mentioned earlier on about people misusing clinical terms. So I'm just going to read that one to kind of provide that context as well, kind of jumping around here. Uh, quote, certain diagnostic terms have made their way into casual parlance and become appropriated as a trendy label. Examples include, she's acting really bipolar. I'm a little OCD. He's so ADHD. Or everyone has a little PTSD. Chloe Kardashian uses this approach with her Chloe CD videos about organizing. It would be great if more people were talking about OCD in terms of what it actually is i.e. a mental illness that can be highly disabling. But such casual, inaccurate use of the term is likely to increase confusion about legitimate OCD, end quote. 
And so I wanted to make sure to share that one because I had alluded to it earlier on in the episode. I'm going to share a little bit more. So, quote, then there's what I call the starving children in Africa argument, because why not draw on another stereotype, right? It could be worse. There are starving children in Africa. What do you have to be depressed about? Or perhaps change the last part of the sentence to who only dream of having your eating disorder. This kind of argument suggests that someone is only allowed to have a problem if it's the worst possible problem one can think of. It's an illness, not a competition, end quote. And so to kind of wrap this up, the author goes into, uh, you know, so as the book progresses on, it gets more nuanced into the different angles of mental health stigma and stuff. And I love um, Ashley Peterson's uh, writings and work related to toxic positivity. Um, And so I'm going to share a little bit um, from the book about that. Um, Because toxic positivity is definitely a thing. Um, So here we go. Quote, positivity is highly valued in much of Western society. We're supposed to cheer up, focus on the positive, and stop being so negative. The term toxic positivity is sometimes used to describe the expectation that people should be all positive all of the time, with no room for any other emotional experiences. Good vibes only. This kind of approach is minimization with a twist. That twist is an expectation that inner experiences be transformed from dark clouds to glittery rainbows. That kind of binary division of emotions into good and bad is completely arbitrary. Some emotions may be more comfortable than others, but they all serve a purpose and they all have a time and place. Would you want to feel happy and excited at a loved one's funeral? Toxic positivity expects people to choose happiness. Sometimes this message is a twisted interpretation of the notion that happiness comes from the inside. Just because an enduring sense of happiness is rooted internally rather than externally doesn't mean that it's readily available to everyone to put on as they please. Yet, good vibes only is sometimes used alongside attempts to promote mental health awareness. If someone fails to live up to the expectations of positivity, they risk being labeled as a, quote, toxic person. They may also be told things like, you're just not grateful enough. You can't be depressed and grateful at the same time. Stop being lazy. Don't be so selfish. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Stop playing the victim. Or you have a victim mentality. The idea that people choose their emotions and other experiences can be seen in the very popular law of attraction. According to this law, like attracts like, and we attract to ourselves, manifest, what we think and feel. That means that if bad things are happening to you, It's a direct result of the vibrations that you're supposedly putting out into the universe. Just stop thinking about your mental illness and poof, the universe will take it away. 
If it sticks around, it's your fault. You manifested it, and now your bad vibes are getting in the way of others' vibratory action. How delightful. A popular online meme has the message, every single day you make a choice. It shows a depressed-looking passenger on one side of the bus looking out at a dark, gloomy view, while the cheerful-looking passenger on the other side of the bus looks at a cheerful, sunny view. The implied message is that we're supposed to choose to sit on the sunny side of the bus. However, if mental illness has you shackled and hogtied to the gloomy side of the bus, switching to the sunny side probably isn't an available option. When people attempt to make mental illness neat and tidy, that effectively sweeps under the rug uncomfortable truths about the complexity of mental illnesses and the challenges that go along with that. If recovery is presented as a simple matter of reframing to make the messier bits disappear, it does a disservice to those people who are actually really struggling. End quote. So in the interest of keeping this second episode concise, I'm going to uh, stop with sharing from the book at that point. But before I go, I want to share a list of other topics that are covered in this book that I think you will enjoy. So um, some other topics that are covered are suicide stigma, societal or sociocultural and also systemic influences on stigma, stigma in healthcare, uh, and also remember that this is a double whammy for people of color because we already experience um, different treatment in healthcare settings. Uh, but add that the complexity of mental illness and it's that intersectionality that's been mentioned before. Uh, the book also talks about law enforcement views on mental health stigma. And then, of course, uh, all of this talk about stigma wouldn't make sense if the author doesn't provide some insights and next steps for how to fight stigma. Um, so as I've said before, this is a really great book. It's a great resource, and it uh, does a great job of breaking down the nuance of mental health stigma. So I definitely highly recommend. Once again, I'm putting the uh, links to where you can find this book into the show notes, and I'll also include the link to the author Ashley Peterson's blog, which is called Mental Health at Home. Uh, but until next time, thank you for listening and take care. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast, and best of all, it's free. They offer creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Did I mention that you can make money from your podcast no matter the size of your following? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today.